Well, we should probably get started. <clears throat> uh, I'll pray. And uh, we'll jump in. Father, thank you so much for uh, this evening. Thank you for uh, this beautiful day that you blessed us with. And uh, we just ask that uh, you would be with us in our time here this evening. Uh, may it be beneficial time of uh, opening your word together, um, making observations, uh, understanding uh, what your word means, and then seeking to apply it to our lives. And we pray <clears throat> that you would help us uh, then to to live uh, in light of um, the things that we discuss. Uh, so be with us this evening, and I pray that you would be glorified in our time. We thank you and praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I guess I'll start with the bad news that uh, this is going to be the last teaching lab for a while. Um, just the, I guess, amount of time and whatnot that it's taking to um, prepare and be here and, and all of that is... Um, proving more difficult than what I had anticipated. And so I think, I don't know, I'm going to take it, take a break for a while, um, but then think about changing format and, I don't know, timing. I don't know if evenings are not good for people, but um, want to be able to have participation. Um, and so... I will keep you updated, but that's where we're at for right now. Uh, but I did want to finish, because we stopped midway through, uh, a discussion on uh, the inductive Bible study method. Um, and <clears throat> just even the, the reasoning background for starting there... Um, I desire for Big Woods to be Bible-saturated. And I think the best way for us to do that is to understand how to read the Bible. And if we are then going to be those who are teaching, we take what we are reading, what we are learning in Scripture, and um, tell other people about it uh, in hopefully ways that they can understand. So... The inductive Bible study method consisted of three parts. Anybody remember what they are? What does it say? Mm -hmm. Interpretation, what does it mean? And application, oh, wait a minute. Uh, what does it mean? Yeah, interpretation, what does it mean? And application, what does it mean to apply it? Yep. Yeah, so the first one was observation. And that's what we got through last time, um, observation. And we said the goal of observation is to interrogate the text uh, because we need to understand what it says before we can come to any conclusions about what it means. And had some tools and whatnot, um, helpful, hopefully, questions and uh, other resources to be able to, to observe properly, looking at different translations, asking about the five W's, the who, what, when, where, and why, 
looking for repetition, theological words, figures of speech. Uh, you find out what the therefore is there for, literary features, genre, um, contrasts, comparisons, illustrations, quotations, um, and those sort of things, comparative references, um, more direct quotations, less direct quotations, observing with a pencil in hand, patterns, those sort of things to, to be able to, to really let the text um, just seep into you uh, so that um, you can come to better understand uh, what it is saying, what the author was trying to communicate and all of that is predicated on the foundation of, I think we started in the first first time together, the author and the author of the text. So the big A author uh, being God, the Holy Spirit inspiring uh, those who were writing scripture, and then also the, the human author. Um, because we, the text is not going to mean something to us that it didn't mean to the original audience. So we need to to understand what the text is saying and really have a grasp of it before we move on to interpretation. Um, so where we left off was to say that we were going to practice the observation portion of the inductive Bible study method by looking at 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. to And I think we started sharing some of our observations, um, but what I wanted to do was just kind of give us some some opportunity to share the observations that we're making, um, asking questions of the text, and then together move on to interpretation. So then, I have, I mean, I have observations and questions and things to share. Um, but hopefully you do as well, and we could spend some time talking about that. Maybe I'll just read the text, and uh, we can then share some observations. So 1 Corinthians 2 says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, do not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Excuse me, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, observations that you made from this passage. Christ was the most important, and fancy words shouldn't get in the way. Does this mean we should be, we should have dumb pastors? No. Uh, what I'm getting at is I've known people, unfortunately, ones that want to teach that seem to put a high price on ignorance. Um, well, that's something that. I've seen them use it that, well, I just want to know Christ. I don't want to know the other stuff. Well, um, that's why we're making observations, so that we can understand why it doesn't mean and, that. And, and I've, I've known a couple of them that, you know, 
They made some awful easy dumb mistakes. Sure. That wouldn't have taken anybody with a whole lot of biblical knowledge to uh, correct. Mm-hmm. And and then the other one I had was it said he showed by the Holy Spirit's power. Now, um, in his day, you know, Paul was able to be bitten by vipers and shake them off. Mm-hmm. Um, he was able to lay hands on people and give them the Spirit. Um, he was able I used to heal. He brought the one the kid that fell asleep during his mm. sermonizing, and he brought him back to life. Mm-hmm. Now, that was nice. That's very wonderful. But the question is with us, how do we show the Holy Spirit now? Now, I mean, I know some charismatics that would want to tell me they know how to do it, and basically, uh, I'm going to walk away and close my ears because, you know, I'm going to get in an argument with them, and it's not worth it. And honestly, um, the question is, uh, that we we'd have to answer there, is how do we... Uh, show this and show it by uh, the Holy Spirit power in us mm-hmm. that would be a question that needed to be, would need to be asked we know how Paul did it right right of course I don't think it was the only way um, I mean I, I'm sure they watched him and and I don't know maybe he got beaten up and then he went ahead and preached and prayed and didn't revile. That would be a character. That would not be a a, uh, a miracle thing. In a way, it is, but it's not a not a. I don't know what you would call it, but it, it a character. I mm-hmm. guess we'd have to come up with. And so you're you're taking this from verse four, but in demonstration of the spirit. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh, then, how would we demonstrate that our message? is in the power of the Holy Spirit, and we're teaching in mm. the power of the Holy Spirit. Right. And we have the Spirit. Obviously, Paul, you know, when he when he was on that, what was it, Malta? And the viper bit him, and they were waiting for him to die. He just shook it off and mm-hmm. came out of the burning sticks. Right. And he shook it off, and they were waiting for him to die, and he didn't die. Right. Because, you know, there are snakes and stuff that if you die... And spiders that you have about 30 minutes to live even today mm-hmm. even today the the trapdoor spider there's no anti-venom if it bites you you have about 30 minutes to live and you're done right back then any what's that anti-venom i mean mm-hmm. you know so that was one way they saw it but how do we yeah and so that 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 is an observation that bleeds into application so we're we're seeing how how Paul is demonstrating the spirit and then the question is okay Paul did it how do we do it and we're moving to application okay yeah so so that i mean there is some bleed over sometimes uh but i think the process of going from observation to interpretation to application is still important and that and that's i mean and that's how that's how we avoid, I think, some of the errors that you're yeah. bringing up because it's easy to to sit down and read a passage and say, 
I think I said even last time we were together, the most dangerous question that we can ask is, what does this text mean to me? Yeah. And I think a lot of, a lot of those errors could be avoided if we could gather information about the text, understand it in its context, and then move to interpretation and then move to application uh, because there's, I mean, the process exists so that we can let the text mean what the text means. Yes, I, I, I yeah. thoroughly agree with that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I will, will say further, and I was thinking about this today as I was walking in the woods. I don't remember his name, but one guy who used to be an apologetic, he said, well, I don't believe the scripture anymore because it's like a Rubik's Cube. You can turn it all different ways and get whatever you want. Well, first of all, the Rubik's Cube can be solved. I don't know how to do it, but I've seen people do it, kids do it, in under five minutes. Yeah. And there's an algorithm to it. Right, right. Now, and see, this is where... This is where I question the guy if he was even a Christian because, there's, in my opinion, there's two things you need to understand in that book. First of all, you need to understand that we could say the algorithm to it is Christ. If you don't see Christ in that from beginning to end, you'll never understand it. Mm -hmm. Just like Rubik's Cube. If you don't use the algorithms, you'll never get it. It's mm -hmm. just a jumble. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is, I've seen people tell you how to solve Rubik's Cube. When you have to shift, there's algorithm for this, and then when you're done with that, you have to go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so it is in the Scripture. You have to put it together. And I think, believe if you do those two things, if you know Christ and you understand that from the beginning when, when, when God covered Adam and Eve with skins, mm -hmm, mm -hmm was was kind of a, um, a, a an allusion to the covering of Christ. And a lot of it, well, I'm kind of pontificating, but it is pretty good pontificating. you got to admit. <laughs> okay. You want me to go on? I, I found something else that was that kind of shocked me. Is it related to this passage? Well, it relates to interpretation. Okay, we'll, we'll get there. Right. Yeah. Uh, Sierra, what uh, what sort of observations do you have? Um, like Glenn was saying in the beginning, like um, in verse uh, one, where it says, "I did not come proclaiming to the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom." Mm. I literally wrote, "Keep it simple, stupid." The gospel <laughs> is simple. You don't yeah. need to be a Bible scholar to know Christ. So it's not an excuse to be ignorant. Yeah. It doesn't have to be complicated. Right. Now I do have a question. Alright. If that is okay. Oh yeah. Um in verse two when it said, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Mm -hmm. That confused me. The okay. first thing that came to my head was do you remember when you did that sermon illustration where you handcuffed you and me together? Mm, and like, I love that one. What is the only thing we have in common? Yeah. And we're like Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that was the first thing that came to my head when I, like, when I was trying to figure out what that meant. But I was confused. Okay. Um. So then, this is where 
understanding different, um, oh, what are they called? They're not parts of speech. They're, um, uh, literary devices. Yeah. Literary devices. Um, so if, if we were to read that text, that verse and take it absolutely literally, then there would be nothing else to the letter of First Corinthians. Okay. There would be nothing else to the twelve other books that that Paul wrote. He would write First Corinthians two, verse two, and that's it. <laughs> and and so that that's kind of kind of like a I guess they would call that a reduction to absurdity, but like if if we were to if we were to take it absolutely literally, that would be the conclusion that we would have to take. So we have to ask the question, so what exactly is going on here in this passage? What is he what is he trying to to get at? And I think um that he is is using hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is. I'm sure that you're on the receiving end of hyperbole from Mike a lot. <laughs> Where you're exaggerating for effect, right? And so so I think what's going on here, uh, he's, he's saying, I, I decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Does he, does he mean that he has no knowledge except for the crucifixion of Christ? No. I think he's trying to explain how central the salvific event is to Christianity. And so he's he's telling the Corinthians and he's telling us that what matters about Christianity is our crucified and resurrected Savior. The salvific event, uh, salvific event is the primary emphasis of the book of 1 Corinthians, the, the ministry of Paul, and we could, even, we could even go to 1 Corinthians 15 to see where Paul says um, in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture and that he appeared to Cephas into the twelve, so on and so forth. I think he's, I think he's just trying to, to say, look, this is important. Yeah. And we better have a good grasp on this. So, yeah, good question. And that's something that... Um, it's not always entirely evident on when an author is using hyperbole but if you if you kind of ask some questions like could he really mean that his only knowledge is Jesus Christ and him crucified you have to answer no to that because he knows a lot of other stuff right so yeah good question other observations He, he didn't use fancy speech because he wanted 
them glorify God. Yeah. And that and that there's even there's even some some cultural background, some historical background to understanding that, um, where I think he's referring to the super apostles that he addresses in uh, is that Second Corinthians like Apollos? Yeah, Second Corinthians eleven five, not Apollos. Um, I think I remember something about super apostles. Yeah, so he said. Uh, indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. And he goes, even I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So he he's kind of using super apostles as like a like a jab. It's more of like a, a pejorative term. He's kind of I don't know, like making fun of them uh, because they are putting the emphasis on lofty speech and on um, the wisdom of man and he's he's calling them super apostles and and contrasting himself with them by saying look that's not what I'm about and there's some dating issues with first Corinthians and second Corinthians and all of that that we discussed a little bit last time too but uh, you know what, which one came first yeah and I think it was second Corinthians but Yeah, so so some of the observations and questions that I was considering um, in verse 1, he says, And I, a simple observation, who is the I? Well, it's Paul. And then uh, it says, When I came to you, brothers, where did he go? Well, he went to Corinth. Um, and so just simple things like that, understanding... Uh, who all is speaking, who all is um, being referenced, where uh, he is, what what the year would be, those sort of things. Um, even asking a question uh, based on verse 2, verse 1, uh, proclaiming to you a testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, asking something like, why does the gospel not require lofty speech or wisdom? And something that you can, you know, think through and I think eventually come to the conclusion um, with Paul in verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that would have been a temptation too because you had the Greek philosophers then that yeah. valued or oratory skills. Yeah, yeah. And they said, stand up. Uh-huh. Lend me your ears. Mm-hmm. Right. Friends, Romans, lend me your ears. Lend yeah. Um, what else? Uh, even asking the question, what kind of wisdom is he referring to when he says lofty speech or wisdom? I think again, yeah, that that helps you get at what you're saying with you know the. The people that he's talking to, he, I think, in saying lofty speech or wisdom, he's showing what the people around him are doing that shouldn't be done because they're relying on man's wisdom. Yeah. And so asking the question, well, when he says lofty speech or wisdom, is this true wisdom or is this false wisdom? Um, in verses 3 and 4, um, 
when he says, was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Uh, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. So he's there contrasting again, uh, where he's saying, my speech is not in plausible words of wisdom, where he's saying in verse 1, uh, they're coming, these super apostles, whoever they were, uh, were coming with lost, lofty speech and wisdom. Um, and so the contrast then comes down to Paul's weakness and God's power. And so Paul is saying, in, in all of this, in the speech that I am proclaiming, what I'm saying to you, what I'm writing to you, um, it's not my wisdom that matters. It's God's wisdom because he's the source of any wisdom that I might share with you. Uh, and so then I think verse 5 becomes kind of like his purpose statement for, for this passage, maybe a little bit before and a little bit after, where he says, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I think what he's saying is that he is not the point. Paul is not the point. God is the point, and specifically the power of God uh, is the point. Hmm. Super apostles, mm -hmm. messengers. It's application again, but it's a it's, it's good. Mm -hmm. It means that the use of the word apostolos or messenger mm -hmm. does not always mean someone like Paul or the Twelve. That's what it means. Yeah, it could. And it could. That would depend because on the he's, context. Look, he's, he's putting them down. Right. Now, you wonder why I say that. Because there are a lot of progressive teachers today that want to make it that everyone that they say that about is on the same level as as Paul or John or somebody like that. And they apply it to Junia, who's referred to in one of Paul's epistles as a messenger. And then they use that to justify preacher woman. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's N.T. Wright's argument. And he also goes to Phoebe as well. Well... My answer to Phoebe is Carol O'Connor or Carol Burnett. In other words, how do you know that Phoebe didn't have dual use? I'll be preaching on that in two weeks. Do we know that? So you can find out. Well, I, there's no way. I mean, look, I don't think we have the, the uh, uh, writing from back then to learn that. But that's my, my answer. Carol Burnett or Carol O'Connor? I don't understand that reference. Well, there's an example of a name that could be male or female. Oh. Well, I, th I think it's clear that in the original that Phoebe is female. Because maybe they found it referring to a male, but maybe they didn't find where it referred to a female. And again, my question would be, deacon, is it, it means servant, mm -hmm. is it always in the um, the office, office right. or just someone who serves. Yeah. And let's remember, <laughs> see, 
you would think Philip. Philip was chosen as a deacon, but he was also an apostle, an evangelist. Was he not? Philip the evangelist? Yeah, was he an apostle? I think so. I don't know. Yeah, he was. Philip is named. And he was also a deacon. So my question is, to them, is, is, is it always mean someone in an office or just a servant? Well, you can come on October 9th, and I will have the definitive answer. No, I, I won't have a definitive no, answer. No, I'm giving but... you some things to think Yeah, about. yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then disciples, you had people following Jesus in throngs as disciples, mm -hmm. but you had the inner 12. Right, right. So does that mean that every disciple was on the same level? Now, the disciples in the inner circle became apostles. But when they were following Jesus with the others. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So in other words, what I'm proposing here is that words like disciple, apostle, deacon can mean different levels. And they don't always mean a church office. Yeah. Food for thought, isn't it? Food for thought. See? Now there's something for you to think about for you when you're going to preach. Thank you. It? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm thinking through those things. Because I thought about that. And I argued with a guy on that. Yeah. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, you know, does it always mean, because it was an inner circle of disciples. So right from the beginning, you have a separation of people that are called the same thing. You can say you have throngs, they're all called disciples, but there was an inner circle. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that's conversation for another time. Well, yeah. maybe... The afternoon of October the 9th after I completely disagree with whatever your opinion now I'm just kidding I don't but we'll get there so any other observations to share because I think we can move on to interpretation um, observations on 2nd Corinthians 1 uh, 2 1 to 5 we have to stay in 2nd Corinthians yeah okay yeah. Yeah, we'll, because I, I I have some, have a plan of what I would like to do right. with, with that passage. And, all right. So, after observation, we move to interpretation. The difficulty is that oftentimes these two steps are very closely related, because it's hard to, it's hard to make pure observations without um, any sort of category of meaning, um, but we have to we have to at least ask questions of the text. We have to you know understand the context, read the passage before, read the passage after, understand the book as a whole, understand the date, all of those sort of things, um, so that we can have a better grasp on what the meaning. Is. And so interpretation comes from the observations that you have made from the text. After you've asked the questions, after you've considered the context, maybe even consulted study resources because you have questions that you're like, I don't know how to answer this. How does someone else answer this question? Um, so the where we said the goal of observation is to interrogate the text, interpretation's goal is to take all the information that you've gathered as you answer the questions and, and come to an understanding of what's going on in the passage, 
um, if, if observation is interrogation, interpretation is summarization. So you're taking all of that data that you've gathered and boiling it down. What I like to do uh, is try to develop some sort of summary statement. One, two, maybe three sentences. I usually try to stick with no more than two. Um, I try to stick as much as possible to one. Um, but I think that is the, um, the best way to go about interpretation. Uh, observation and interpretation can't be separated oftentimes because um, observation will prevent us from bringing our own thoughts and ideas to the text uh, and making incorrect summarization. So we don't want to come to the text only to interpret without having observed first because chances are we're going to bring in a lot of different ideas or um, even our own worldview, whatever it might be, to the text instead of letting the text speak, which is what we're hoping to do in observation. So we could often end up with incorrect summarization. I, I hope you know that we all have opinions and we don't want our opinions to be what determines the meaning of the text. Rather, we want the text to tell us what the text means. And we do that by observing what is in the text. And, and so that's where I think it's helpful to take everything that you've observed and to boil it down uh, into a summary statement. Uh, and the observations, the observation portion of that uh, allows me to be so familiar with the text that I know what it's saying so that I can summarize it accurately. So that's what I would like to do. I would like you to just consider um, the observations that you made from the passage and spend like, well, spend enough time for me to go fill up my water um, boiling your observations down into a summary statement. I have a statement that I can share when I get when you know when we get back, but I would like for you to have have a statement, one to three sentences. Mine is one sentence, um, and so take some time to do that. I will go fill up my water and be right back. Okay.
Do we need another minute? <clears throat> so, um, oftentimes when I am preaching, I will, at some point early in the sermon, usually, I will share my summary statement. Um, <clears throat> I forget what it was last time I preached. It was, uh, uh, God cares about unity in the church more than he does your preferences, and you should too, something like that. Um, from Romans 14, I think. And I do that uh, because I think it's helpful to anyone who would be listening to know, all right, this is the point that the passage makes, and so this is the point that I want to make in this sermon. So I think it's good practice in communicating the Word of God to people, whether it's preaching setting, teaching setting, discipleship setting, um, for us to to have this sort of understanding of the text, uh, and that happens through observation interpretation, um, and the unique part of observation uh, of interpretation is that you're you're kind of doing it all all the while um, doing the observation part. So, you know, it's hard, hard to say, like, there's a clean break, like, okay, I have finished all of my observations, I am now going to do interpretation. All of the data that you're gathering in the observation portion pushes you towards the actual interpretation of it. Um, and so, you know, you may change your statement halfway through. You may uh, say, you know what, that actually doesn't capture all of what this passage is teaching, whatever it may be. So I figured we could, um, we could share our statements and then um, move on to application from there. Um, and I don't really have a lot more to say about observation or uh, about interpretation because I think you gather all of the data and then just try to understand it in a, a simplified way. So I don't have like helpful tips and tricks, questions to ask for this process. I think it's just just understand what the text says and then boil it down. I do have quite a few things to say about application, but... Um, does somebody, either of you, want to share your statement first? Is it if I mean, if it's incomplete, if you're not like, I'm not really sure, that's fine. We can spend some time helping refine our statements, but anyone? Okay. Um, I, like, it's not perfect. I, it's not complete either, but I was like, Christ crucified is simple. It doesn't need elegant words or man's wisdom to display its power. Mm. Yeah. Can I 
Mine was uh, preaching of gospel done in the power of Holy Spirit, not fancy words, so God gets glory. Yeah. Uh, mine was God's power is not expressed in fancy words, but in the crucifixion of Jesus. So I think, I mean, I think we're all, we're all on the same page. That's good. We are, I think, expressing in our own words the message of this text and that's good (laughs) um if we were if we didn't agree then we would have further questions to ask but i think i mean i think we're on the same page right and and i think i mean this is this is not an overly complex passage one of the reasons why i chose it Um, and it's clear what paul is trying to communicate so it makes it makes that a simple process, but uh, it's just one of those things where um, if you come up with something from the passage that no one else sees or has ever seen, you might want to rethink it. You might want to observe a little bit more. You might want to pull in some resources and all of that. Um, but I think the general general sense of the text is. The super apostles, those with lofty speech and worldly wisdom, were doing it wrong. How to do it right is to focus on um, to focus on the wisdom of God uh, as seen in the crucifixion. So I think that's that's good, um, and we agree. So even better. The next the next portion of it is application. And so we ask the questions, ask the question based on your observations, what does this text mean in interpretation? But then in application, um, we're asking, how do I live in accordance with what this passage means? A lot of times when we read scripture, this is the first thing that we want to do. But I think it is the wrong thing to do first. I think application can and should only come after understanding. And if we've not done the work of understanding first, we don't want to move to application because our understanding may be wrong. It may be incomplete. And so then we're, we're basing our application on something that's wrong or incomplete. And we may be living in a way that is actually contrary to what God has revealed in his word. And so application goes from the meaning to what you are supposed to do with it. And so because you have made the observations and determined the meaning, you are now called to do something with that information. The goal of application is to live according to the text. We see James who says we are not to be hearers only. And so if we stopped the process without applying, we would not be doers of the word. We would be merely hearers. And so application usually comes pretty naturally because once we have the meaning, we are challenged in some way to live differently. And so if I I know that God's power is not expressed in fancy words, but in the crucifixion of Jesus, as I'm teaching, explaining the word of God to someone 
one-on-one, whatever it may be, I'm not going to do so with fancy words. I'm not going to try to impress them. I'm going to point them to the cross and show them, look, this is what God has done. This is where any power or wisdom comes from. And I'm going to make much of that instead of, um, you know, trying to, like the super apostles, uh, use lofty wisdom and those sort of things. So, does anything come to mind in the category of application based on your summary statement where you like, okay, if this is true, then I must do this. Any sort of applications come to mind? Christ is paramount. Yeah. Christ is paramount. Now, I mean, there's some things that we, we, we teach morally and in the Bible and so forth, and there's other aspects and things, you know, um, about like such as when Paul was dealing with eating of meats, sacrificed idols. Mm-hmm. So there's other things beside that. Right. But all of it has to go back to Christ. In other right. words, the example I gave you, <clears throat> well, why would it, should I be concerned about eating meat or it being wrong? Well, because uh, Christ is paramount. He's died. He died for my sin. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't continue in sin and I should follow him and I want to do what's right. It all should go back to Christ. Paramount. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. You know, whatever, whatever we do, if we defend the Bible, why? Well, because with if it's garbage, then Christ's resurrection and so forth and his atonement mm-hmm. is garbage too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good application. I mean, everything and... we do biblically should some way, whether directly or indirectly, tie into the concept of Christ, his resurrection, his, his payment, and following him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To be a, a Christian, a Christ-gen. Right. Christ-generated. So, yeah. Yeah, that would be a good application from this passage. And and maybe even to specifically word it in, in the way of like a an imperative where... Um, we would say Jesus is Lord, live like it. Yeah, <laughs> sort something of like that. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Come up with a bumper sticker type thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, a statement. You're yeah, right. and, yeah. And, yeah, it is. And <clears throat> yes, I, I would think that would be it. And everything has to tie back. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Sierra, any anything to add? Any other or disagreement. Uh, no, I had just written Christ crucified is the most important thing. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I have 11 questions to ask in the process of application, and I have a few, I think I th- just a few different resources and ways to go about it um, that I think will be helpful, and that will that will be how I wrap it up um but i say that not expecting it to be in the next 10 minutes (laughs) 
So I've got 11 questions, but this may take a while, is what I'm saying. So 11 questions to help us apply based on our observations and our interpretations. Firstly, ask, does this passage point out sin in my life for which I need to confess and repent? So, so if, we've, if we've determined that there is some sort of, of um, moral teaching in the passage, and that's the point of the passage, or it's, it's within the passage, and I'm not living according to that teaching, then the application is live according to that teaching. There's some sort of sin that has been revealed in my life. I need to confess it, and I need to repent. Uh, and that is something that you can uh, do more broadly in a teaching setting as well that knows um, that requires knowing your audience a little better and whatnot. But um, if there's a sin in the passage, you need to draw it out and make it known, uh, make it clear, and call others to confession and repentance as well. Secondly, um, asking what assumptions does this passage have that I don't share? Or maybe assumptions that I share but don't necessarily live, live by. So like uh, an assumption of the passage, um, we could say an assumption of this passage is that um, Jesus is Lord. We could say an assumption of this passage is uh, God is sovereign. And so if, if there's something that is taught by the text that um, we disagree with, then it's not the Bible that needs to change. It's us. And so is there something that is assumed that you believe? Um, I mean, an assumption of something like the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, an assumption is that there is one God. Yep. If you believe otherwise, you're wrong. <laughs> Uh, thirdly, I'm going to lose count here because I didn't number these. Is there a command to obey that I see in this passage? So uh, think of like 1 Thessalonians 5.17, the will of God is your sanctification. And he goes on to list things like fleeing from sexual immorality. And that's a command. That's not something, you know, you can come to and say, you know, he says flee from sexual immorality, but he doesn't really mean that. Uh, so if there's a command to obey in this passage, asking something like, what are ways in which I'm not obeying this command? Or maybe, what, what in my life is keeping me from fully obeying this command? And so when we, when we come across those imperatives, when we come across those commands in Scripture, the, the simplest application is to say, am I doing this? And if not, we need to change. Fourthly, is there encouragement for me in this passage? 
not everything that we're reading is going to be negative. We may come to Romans 8.1 and read, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's something we can be encouraged by. That's something that, that we should take great hope in uh, because we are free in Christ from the condemnation that our sin has, has brought to us. And so if there's an encouragement from the passage, we can draw that out and say, be encouraged. <laughs> you know, we can, we can remind ourselves and whoever is listening that um, the truth of the gospel is that we are uh, freed from the penalty of our sin. Uh, that is hopefully something that is encouraging. Uh, fifthly, along the same lines, is there a promise in this passage from God that holds true for me. Think of uh, Philippians 1.6. Uh, for he who started a good work, I, I'm butchering it, um, for I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work will bring it to completion. I have it, never mind here. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise. The work of God will not fail. And so if, if, if there's a promise that we read, an application is for us to take hope, uh, is for us to, to understand that we can trust God and can apply that promise to ourselves, but also to our hearers to say, this is what God has said about uh, the situation about, you know, whatever it may be. And, and again, it's similar to, is there an encouragement, but we can be encouraged by the promise of God because God doesn't fail. Uh, next, this might be six, I don't know. Uh, does this passage teach me something about who God is? So now, now we're in the realms of theology. We're in the realms of doctrine. And you might think, well, that's not really application. But I would say all true change in the Christian life comes as we understand more about who God is and who we are. And not only just who we are, but who we are in light of who God is. So in, in particular, the more the Bible shows us about the excellence of our Savior and King, the more we want to spend our lives in worship of him. And so I think theology um, is application. That if we can, if we can understand um, the, the omnipresence of God, if we can understand that, that he is always with us, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then we can, we can cling to that and we can understand that, um, you know, even in our darkest times, even as David says, you know, I, I descend to the depths of Sheol and you are there. Um, so it's, it's comforting to us to understand that particular attribute of God, that he is everywhere present. And so theology is application. <laughs> Again, along the same lines, six, maybe seven, I don't know. Um, does this passage help me understand something about myself? 
This overlaps even a little bit with question one, but I think it, it could also be a little more nuanced um, because we learn about our motives for doing something that is revealed to us as we uh, look at Scripture. And it it's... Uh, I was reading somebody... He wrote a book once, and he was explaining the passage in James... Um, when you oh, talks about the mirror, looking at it, yeah, and and 